So this morning, let's imagine that we are gardeners and that we are going to plant a pumpkin patch. Uh, maybe we're pumpkin farmers, I don't know. But uh, what I have up here is, this is a variety of pumpkin called fairy tale. So that's the name of the variety. If you look at the pumpkin, you can see where they probably got that name from. So imagine that in our garden, we wanted to grow fairy tale pumpkins. Uh, we would, of course, take seed, uh, plant the seed, and hopefully the pumpkin vines would begin to grow. And what we would expect to happen, because in our pumpkin patch, we've only planted fairy tale pumpkin seeds, what we would expect is self-pollination, meaning that the stamen from the pumpkin vine uh, would connect with the stigma on the pumpkin vine, and that would allow the pumpkin vine to produce fruit. And what we would expect is the fruit that would be produced is fairy tale pumpkins. And so we would have hopefully lots and lots of fairy tale pumpkins. Now, suppose we take one of those fairy tale pumpkins and we let it go to seed, uh, meaning we're going to use it to plant next year's crop. And so we harvest the pumpkin, we get the seeds, we prepare the seeds. Next year, when we planted those seeds from any one of those pumpkins, we would get fairy tale pumpkin vines again. And you could do this for generation after generation. This is one of the miracles of God's creation and how this works is that we're planting fairy tale pumpkins over and over again and the seeds every time are fairy tale pumpkin seeds. Now consider in our pumpkin patch if we decide to not only plant fairy tale pumpkin, but also this is a different variety, you can tell. This is called flatso. Not fatso, but flatso. Flatso pumpkins. And imagine that we plant flatso pumpkin seeds in the same pumpkin patch that we have fairy tale pumpkin seeds. Well, what we would imagine would happen is, is that as those two different vines are growing, we would probably get cross pollination, meaning that the stamen from the flatso pumpkin vine would connect with the stigma from the fairy tale pumpkin vine, allowing the fairy tale pumpkin vine to produce fruit. Now, the kind of fruit that the fairy tale pumpkin plant would produce after cross pollination would be fairy tale pumpkins. So they look slightly different, but this is a fairy tale pumpkin. And what would happen is, is even though there's been cross pollination, the fruit that is produced from the fairy tale pumpkin vine are fairy tale pumpkins. However, there would be a difference between these two pumpkins. It would not be an outward appearance. They would both be equally fairy tale pumpkins. The difference would be in the seeds. If you were to let one of these cross-pollinated pumpkins go to seed, and you were to take out the seed and replant them next season, you would no longer get fairy tale pumpkins. You would get a cross between flatso pumpkin and fairy tale pumpkin. This is why it often takes generations to develop new hybrids or new varieties of various fruits and vegetables. Now, you may wonder to yourself, Self, why are we talking about pumpkins? Well, consider another metaphor, and it's a metaphor. Imagine the whole world as God's giant pumpkin patch. 
and imagine that in this pumpkin patch, there are two different kinds of pumpkins or two different kinds of humans. Now, there are not two different kinds of humans. There's only one kind, but for the story, one are Christians, the other are non-Christians. Now, imagine what would happen if in this pumpkin patch that we call the world, God chooses to plant Christians right next to or near non-Christians. Well, what would happen? We would expect some level of cross-pollination. And you might think to yourself, well, why would God do that? Why would God plant both Christians and non-Christians near each other in the same pumpkin patch? Well, remember, God loves everybody. He loves all pumpkins. And the hope would be is that there would be cross-pollination from Christians to bless and affect and benefit non-Christians. And that would be the hope. And because God loves non-Christians, that's the plan. Do you see any possible danger in the plan if God plants Christians and non-Christians that close to each other? Yes, the danger is cross-pollination the other direction. There's a very real danger that non-Christians end up cross-pollinating or contaminating Christians. The result will be something that might look and genuinely is Christian, except in the seeds, something is different. Something's changed. It might not show up until the next generation, but by outward appearance, these are the same pumpkin, but something has changed in this one. Well, it's this danger because God has indeed planted Christians and non-Christians in the same patch. It's this danger of cross-pollination that Jesus wants to warn us about today and wants to speak specifically to you and I and to Calvary Church about the possibility of cross-pollination and contamination. So I'd like to invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 992. It's the very last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 2. We are looking at a message that Jesus spoke first to a historical church in the city of Pergamum but is also speaking to us today here at Calvary Church, Grand Rapids, Michigan, 2020. Sasha read this for us, and so we're just going to dive in and work our way through the passage that we heard read to us. The message that Jesus has for us today opens with, like all messages in Revelation do, a description of who he is. And with each church, Jesus highlights a different aspect of his description. And here in this message, verse 12, second half of verse 12, Jesus says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. This is a reference to 
First of all, the picture of Jesus in, in Revelation 1, where this very visual, very graphic description of Jesus describes metaphorically a sword coming out of his mouth. And the sword is double-edged, and that is a reference to Hebrews 4, where it says the word of God or the words that Jesus speaks are sharper than any double-edged sword, so precise and so powerful that they can divide even between soul and spirit, between bones and bone marrow, and that Jesus' words judge the thoughts and intents of our heart. In other words, Jesus can see inside the pumpkin. And Jesus' words are so precise and so exact that he can divide within that pumpkin between what is from God and is good and what is contamination from the world and is bad. And that when Jesus speaks, and the words we're about to hear today are designed by Jesus to speak to our hearts, to divide and separate that which in our hearts that no one else can see, but to divide that which is good from that which is contamination that comes from the world. So with his very precise words, Jesus begins first with a commendation. When he looks at our pumpkins, he sees something good worth commending. And he speaks words designed to commend what is good, and it's a genuine commendation. To understand the commendation, we need to hear it and then try to figure out what he means when he talks about Satan here. Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Now, when Jesus first spoke this message and John recorded it, he was speaking to a church in a historical city of Pergamum. And he talks about Satan having his throne there. And what we think he's referring to is in the city of Pergamum, there was a massive temple complex to Zeus and Athena. Here's an artist's rendition of what that probably looked like in the historical city of Pergamum. This massive temple complex to Zeus and Athena. And amazingly, we have not only just kind of a historical uh, artist's rendition of it, we actually still have the temple. It's not in Pergamum, it's in Germany. It's in a museum in Berlin, a museum on the river. Uh, this is a picture of part of that temple reconstructed in the city of Berlin today. So this is what is going on in the city of Pergamum. And Jesus says, look, I know where you live. I know what goes on in that city. I know that in the middle of that city, you've got a big temple to Satan. Notice he doesn't say it's a temple to Zeus or a temple to Athena. He says it's a temple to Satan. Now, why would he say that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul is being asked the question, what about meat that gets sacrificed at temples like that? Should, we eat, should Christians eat that stuff? Paul says, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, meaning 
There is no Zeus. There's no Athena. These were things humans came up with. These were idols that humans created. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to who? Demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. This is what Jesus is saying is, yes, on outward appearance, it's called the temple of Zeus and the temple of Athena, but Jesus knows who's the source behind this. And his words divide and he says, look, we're not talking about Zeus and Athena. We're talking about Satan. Satan is the one who is behind the idolatry that takes place at that temple. There is no Zeus, there is no Athena, but there is a Satan. And he is real and he is powerful. And Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, look, I know where you live. You live in a tough spot. He's like, I planted you in a tough pumpkin patch. Same is true for us living in America today. 1 John 5 says, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. America too? You sure? America too? Under the control of the evil one. God looks and says, I know where you're planted. I know where you live. You live and I live in a country that is under control of the evil one. And when Jesus looks around, he says, look, I see the wickedness. I see the sexual immorality. I see all this stuff going on, but especially the idolatry. And he says, I recognize what other people might not, but that Satan has got his hooks into all the things going on in America. That some of the things like our financial systems or our technological inventions or our politics or our entertainment, Jesus says, I can see some of Satan's influence in all those things. Which means he's saying, look, it's tough to be a Christian in America today. It's tough to be a Christian during this time, and it's only getting harder. Now, we don't have it as hard as lots of people in the world do. But Jesus is not talking to them right now. He's talking to us. And he says, I see where you're planted. I see where you live. You live in a place where Satan is running wild. You live in a place where You can call it whatever you want, but Jesus sees behind all those institutions, all those things, all the stuff going on, and he sees Satan's influence, and he says, you live in Satan's pumpkin patch. But here's the commendation, and it's a genuine commendation, and it's meant for you and me today. He says, but you're still pumpkins. Well done, you're still Christians. It's hard to be a Christian in America today. It's hard to be a Christian in lots of places in the world today. But Jesus says, I want to commend you for the fact that you're choosing to call yourself Christians. You're still Christian and you're genuinely Christian. You're a fairy tale pumpkin. Thank you for doing that. Jesus is saying to Calvary Church, thank you. Well done, Calvary Church. You are Christians in the midst of a world where it is becoming increasingly difficult and hard to be a Christian. And so Jesus says, I want to commend you. And again, with his very precise words, he says, I realize you could have just abandoned the whole thing. I realize you could stop identifying yourself as a Christian. I realize you could run and hide. He's like, but you haven't done that. You are still 
being Christians, calling yourself Christians in a world that doesn't want you and I to do that anymore. And Jesus says, well done. Thank you. Now there's also a criticism, a potential criticism. It's in verses 14 and 15. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you. So Jesus is not talking to everybody with this criticism. The commendation did seem to be for everybody. The criticism was there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans. The best we can tell is that they were some group that had idolatrous practices uh, that Christians were drawn to. We do, however, know a lot more about Balaam. So let me tell you Balaam's story and see why Jesus is referring to this story to help us understand what the criticism that he potentially has for us today. Now, Balaam's story is in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Balaam lives at the time in which Israel has come out of Egypt and are in the wilderness. Balaam, however, is a prophet, but not an Israelite, meaning he is not a descendant of Jacob, but he is a prophet of Yahweh, a prophet of God. And somehow, again, there are many of them in the Old Testament, God has connections with people outside of the nation of Israel, and Balaam is one of those, and he is a powerful prophet. God's word resides strongly in Balaam, and he's well known for being a prophet. Well, there is a man named Balak who is also referenced in this passage. Balak is king of the Moabites. And Balak sees the Israelites coming through the wilderness and there is this mass horde of people and he thinks we're in some trouble. That is a giant group of people. They're going to eat up everything, including my nation of Moab. So he thinks I got to do something spiritual to try to stop them. We're not going to win a fight with them. So I got to get somebody who's got some power to curse them. So he wants a prophet to speak words of cursing. Well, as you can imagine, it'd be pretty tough to find an Israelite prophet who's willing to curse the Israelite people. So Balak says, I'm gonna go get Balaam. And so he sends messengers to Balaam to try to get him to come and work for Balak. Now, when the messengers show up, Balaam does what a prophet is supposed to do. He goes and asks God and God says, don't go with those people. So Balaam says, look, I can't help you. Then Balak, through his messengers, says, oh, but I will pay you a lot of money. I will make you very rich. And Balaam says, let me go check again. So he goes back and he asks God again. God, can I please go? And God says, yes. Okay, Balaam's God is all right. So he gets on his donkey and he gets ready to go. And as he's leaving, the angel of the Lord shows up in front of him and is about to kill him. And you may be familiar with the story. He can't see him, but the donkey can. And so the donkey's like, what are you doing? You're going to get us both killed. Now, when you read this story in the Bible, maybe like me, you're just like, what? 
Why is God trying to kill him? He told him to go, right? Well, what we can't see with our eyes, but what Jesus can see is something's wrong in the heart. Balaam is really excited because he's going to get some cash. And God says, you want to go because you want the money. And so he warns him very seriously. Do not say anything except exactly what I tell you to say. Because Balaam's like, look, if you don't want me to go, I won't go. God's like, no, go. But do not say anything other than exactly what I tell you to say. And so he literally puts the fear of God into Balaam. And so Balaam goes and he shows up and Balak says, there's the Israelites, curse them. And so Balaam gets up. He's thinking, man, I got a lot of money coming. I'm going to, this will be a good one. And he tries to curse him. And what comes out of his mouth? Blessing. God says, you're not going to curse him. You're going to say these words instead. So Balaam tries again, again, blessing. And again, blessing. Well, at this point, Balak is like, uh, there better be a refund policy here because you did not do what I asked you to do. And so he says, I'm not paying you anything. No money for you. Now, when you read the story in the book of Numbers, it kind of feels like it ends there. But Jesus and another chapter later on in Numbers tells us there's more to the story. I got to embellish a little bit to try to flush out how the details probably fit together. What seems to have happened is that after Balaam blesses Israel and Balak is mad at him, Balaam seems to kind of hang out with the Moabites. And he's hanging out with Balak because it looks like he still wants the money. Now, he knows he's not able to curse the Israelites because he's a prophet. He can't say whatever he feels like saying. The words won't come out. And so he comes up with an idea for how Balak can still harm the Israelites and Balaam can get his money without having to say anything. And this is the idea Balaam comes up with. He says to Balak, hey, take your most attractive sort of Moabite women and let's have them kind of camp near and hang out near the Israelite men. And their job will be to seduce them. And that by living near to them, they're going to seduce them to engage in sexual immorality. And then Balaam says to Balak, what you want them to do is get the women who are having sex with these Israelite men to invite the Israelite men back with them to worship Baal. Baal is the false god of the Moabites. And so this is exactly what Balak does. Because Balaam knows, look, the only way you're going to get God to turn on these people is if you can introduce sin into the equation, if you can introduce idolatry into the equation. And Balaam says, the way we're going to do this is we're going to cross-pollinate. We're going to contaminate them, and we're going to bring them into this party we're having for Baal, and we're going to get them to eat meat sacrificed to this false god, and we're going to get them to engage in idolatry, and then God will turn his back on them. Jesus says, when I look at some of you, some of us here this morning, he says, I see that same heart. That just like Balaam was contaminated by his love of money, and just like Balaam and Balak contaminated the Israelites through sexual immorality and through abuses of, uh, of idolatry, Jesus says, when I look into your hearts, I see contamination. You're still a pumpkin. You're still a Christian. 
Thank you for naming the name of Jesus. But, Jesus says, I see idolatry. No one else may see it from outward appearance, but I see it. It may not fully manifest itself until the next generation, but I see it. And so the question for you this morning, and the question for me, is Jesus speaking these words to us? When he looks in your heart, does he see, for example, idolatry of money? This was Balaam's issue. Outwardly, you may be obeying. I'm going to do what I'm told to do. Balaam was doing the same thing. But God said, I see what's in your heart. You want to obey in these scenarios because that'll result in money. You're not so keen about obeying in these scenarios because it won't result in money. Are some of us here? Have we taken jobs? And are we choosing to work extra overtime on Sundays because we'd like more money, even though it pulls us away from time with God's people? Are there some of us here who are writing papers or essays for our college professors, espousing things that we don't really believe in because we think if we espouse those things, we'll get better grades and better grades lead to better jobs and better jobs lead to better salary. Jesus says, I know what you're doing. I see it. Are there some of us here who've taken stuff from cleaning out our apartment or our garage or our house and we're selling them to other Christians or to other people when we should just be giving them the stuff. And we're thinking to ourselves, oh, I can get just a little bit of extra money here. Jesus says, no one else will know. Lots of jobs. There's, there's medical personnel, for example, that need to work on Sundays. Jesus says, I know that. But I also see that in your heart, you're hoping you get more shifts, that you want to have more opportunity to work. We all got to write papers for the classes that we're in, but Jesus says, I know why you're doing what you're doing. He says, I know why you're selling that stuff. He's like, I know what's going on in your heart. He's like, I know how many times you're checking your retirement account. He says, I know how many times you're, you're thinking about how, when, when can I go in and ask for a raise? He's like, I know what you're doing. He says, I see it. I see it in your heart. It's idolatry of money. No one else may notice. You look just like the other pumpkins. But he says, I see it. Is there idolatry of sexual immorality? That's the second one mentioned in here. Balaam says, all we got to do is get them to live in and near a people who have different sexual morals than they do, and we can draw them in. Are you and I watching stuff on Netflix that Jesus does not want us watching? You're like, well, how would I know? We know. We know. Have you believed the lie that this country that we live in is telling us? That there are no consequences to sex? As long as you're not hurting somebody, you're not hurting yourself, go ahead and do whatever you feel like doing. Have we been contaminated by a culture that says, hey, look, unless you're married or unless you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, something's the matter with you. And so we're trying to use sex to draw people in, or we're willing to date somebody that doesn't love Jesus because we just want to be with somebody. Jesus says, I, I see it. I see it in your heart. I see that longing. I see that desire. 
is their idolatry for power. That's the third one in the passage. Balaam is drawn to Balak because Balak can make some things happen. I only want to tell you this as your friend, as your pastor, and as someone who loves you. There's a lot of people who are Christians who in this election year are being contaminated by the world around us. The country is telling us that what happens in November will make all the difference in the world. That this is the most important event of this year. The most important election of our lifetime. Nothing could be further from the truth. Whatever happens in November, the kingdom of God is not going to be hindered one bit. Jesus is going to do what Jesus does. We're praying for the election. I hope you participate, all of those kinds of things. But some of us have believed the lie that the culture is telling us that everything rides on this election. And I'm here to tell you as Christians, that's not true. Can I meddle a little further? For a lot of Christians, the Supreme Court is an idol. And in our heart and in our minds and in our thoughts, we think if you can just get certain people onto the Supreme Court, if you can just get certain decisions done, then things will be better. That, my friends, is by definition an idol. This is what Jesus does. And if you packed the Supreme Court with everybody that has the exact view you have, it's not going to change Satan's power in this world. Jesus can. And the question is, and only you're going to know this, when you read those news stories, when you find yourself fixated on what's going on, when you find yourself getting super excited when something happens politically that seems to be for you, and you get super discouraged when something happens politically that doesn't seem to be for you, that is a sign that something is wrong in the heart. And Jesus says, look, I see it. Nobody else may see it. You look like a beautiful pumpkin. But those seeds, I see them, they're contaminated. So if that's us, and it's not everybody, but he says, some among you, some here today, this is true for What should be our response? Verse 16. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice the change in pronouns. I will come to you, Calvary Church, and fight against them. Not the whole church, not all of us. Just the ones in the room online for whom the cross-pollination, the contamination uh, in their hearts is going on. Jesus said, I'm not coming to fight with everybody, but I know which is which. He says, repent. Now, the warning is not as harsh or strict as the one in Ephesus where he's like, look, if you guys don't get this love thing fixed, I'm going to snuff out your candle. 
Here he says, look, if you don't do something about this, I'm going to come and I'm going to have a fight with you. And my dear friends, if there is one person you do not want to pick a fight with, it is Jesus. And what he essentially says is, look, if I start speaking to you about that contamination and you don't do anything about it, he essentially says, I'm going to cut you open and I'm going to remove it. It's sort of like when the doctor says to you, okay, look, we can either try to solve this problem by changing lifestyle or you can go through surgery. Jesus is saying, look, you don't want the surgery option. He loves us too much to leave the contaminated seeds in there, but you don't want him slicing you open and taking that stuff out. What's the alternative? Repent. Repent. We all do this. We all experience this contamination. Every single person at some point thinks, man, if I could just have a little more money, my life would be better. Every single person thinks, man, sex might be this really great thing that can make me happy and fulfilled in life. Everybody thinks if we could just get this done politically or that done or whatever. Everybody does this stuff and Jesus says, look, repent. Just tell me that you're sorry and change your mind about these things. Stop thinking money's gonna fix everything. Stop thinking sex will make you fulfilled. Stop thinking that politics is the end all and the be all. He says, repent and you're going to be okay. If you don't, he said, I'm going to cut you open and I'm going to take this stuff out. Fortunately, those are not the last words of the message. Jesus ends as always with hope. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus says to you today and to me as well, if we're willing to repent, he promises two things. We're going to take them in reverse order. He promises a white stone with a name written on it that nobody knows except Jesus and that person. What this symbolizes is a new relationship, a deeper relationship with Jesus. White symbolizes purity. Stone symbolizes solidity. Stones don't cross-pollinate. They don't absorb stuff from their environment. Stones are rock solid, and the name that's on it reflects a deeper relationship. Jesus said, you and I are going to have the kind of relationship where I will have a name for you, metaphorically speaking, that nobody else is going to know. You and I are going to connect together in a deeper way. And the promise of Jesus is, look, if you just let go of Zeus and Athena, if you would just let go of money and sex and power, if you would just let go of these idols, what you will get in return is a deeper, fulfilling relationship with Jesus. Let me tell you, please don't spend 80 years figuring out that money cannot solve your problems. Please do not spend your life figuring out that sex leaves you more damaged than fulfilled. Please do not spend the rest of your time here on earth thinking politics are going to solve any problems. Everybody gets to the point of realizing these are idols we created that have no power to help us. Jesus says, but I love you. And what he offers to us is a deeper relationship with him. The second thing that he offers is hidden manna. This is actually a reference to communion. 
It's actually a reference to the thing that communion symbolizes. Hidden because the world doesn't recognize it. When we celebrate communion, the world says, well, that's a, that's a religious ceremony. You got some bread and you got some juice and you do some stuff nice. It's manna because it's actually life from God that comes from heaven. In that 1 Corinthians 10 passage, when Paul is talking about meat sacrificed idols that we read earlier, he also talks about Balaam, by the way, in that passage. He goes on to say this. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? It's talking about communion. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to pick a fight with Jesus? Are we stronger than he is? What Jesus promises is what communion symbolizes. And that is not only fellowship with him, but fellowship with other Christians and other believers. Maybe you haven't noticed, but the pursuit of money, sex, power, fame, comfort, whatever else you want to add to the list. All it does is leave you isolated and alone. But the pursuit of Jesus leaves you in deeper relationship with him and community with others. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.